Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. And this is how you throw a Halloween party in Victorian America. Victorian hostesses would cut strips of newspaper and hang them from the ceiling so you could just feel them go across your face. Or, like, you know, nailing a piece of liver to the wall so you feel that in the dark. By contrast, this is how Halloween is celebrated at Dan Pashman's house. I put a scary mask on top of a stuffed animal and it would like swing on a rope and kind of like swing into the faces of the kids while they're at the front door. But um, it, it only worked a little bit. We're balancing both tricks and treats today, starting with a treat. Up first is food writer Alex Beggs. She's the author of the New York Times article on gumdrop grapes and other fruits designed to taste like candy. Alex, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about superstar fruits. Yes. But this is a very different world than coming up with a slightly better version of the Red Delicious. This is creating something with a taste profile that is actually profoundly different. So my first question is, this is based upon traditional crossbreeding techniques, right? We're we're not talking, for the most part, about GMO here. We're talking about the kinds of technology that were available 100 years ago, except obviously improved over time. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned Red Delicious because it almost looks like a still life version of an apple and then you taste it and it's mealy and kind of flavorless. And so what happened to the poor Red Delicious? But it went through the same process as these new fancy fruits. It was also crossbred and it got so crossbred for the look of it and so that it would travel long distances and stay intact and have a long shelf life, it wasn't crossbred as much for the flavor. So that's what it lost over time. And now it's kind of this sad (laughs) brushed away. I don't know how you feel about Red Delicious. I feel kind of bad for it. It's lost its luster. Compost. Yeah. Excellent compost. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about um, one of these new candy-like fruits, the cotton candy grapes. I guess a horticulturist named David Kane started development back in 2011. But how, how do you do it? You know, what's the process? Yeah, so David King is this fruit scientist breeder who tasted a grape that a uh, university had been working on. It's just so weird to think about. Like they're at a grape convention somewhere and he tastes this grape and he's like, this kind of tastes like cotton candy, but it was mealy and smushy and soft and it needed needed some work and so he got permission to like you know there's all kinds of legal stuff happening too you know this like university owns this very special breed of a grape so he gets permission to breed that grape with another variety of grapes until he comes up with a cotton candy flavored grape that also has taut skin and it's juicy and it doesn't smush in the container after two hours, and it just takes many, many years of crossbreeding, creating all these little seedling plants, you know, tasting them, and it's not quite there. Uh, So that's the core of it. So it's been over 10 years. 
cotton candy grapes in the last year sold $129 million, which is a lot of money. And this is now ushering in a whole new world of fruits that look or taste like something different than you'd expect, right? Like candy, specifically. Yeah. Something really indulgent and playful. And um, and I think that's kind of what sets these apart is just how how all in they've gone with the marketing and the branding. So what are some other grape and strawberry varieties that are coming out now? So Sunset Fruit Company has been working for years on a better blackberry. You know how blackberries can have that woody center mm -hmm. and it's like so juicy and good. And then there's like that little tannic wood thing in there. So they've been breeding a blackberry that doesn't have that. And as a result, it's kind of crazy looking and like it'll be like an elongated hmm. blackberry. Um, so those are coming and they're calling them moonberries. Some other ones you write about, uh, the pink glow pineapples, which are the, the <laughs> mm -hmm. quote, the color of deli ham. Oh, you would be so disgusted if you saw them, Chris. 15 bucks each. <laughs> $15 for pineapple. And then there was... Or 40 You can buy 40. a $40 gift box if you want online, you know, for Mother's Day or something. They were trying to sell them. I thought that was hilarious. And the Picasso melons, <laughs> the sweet honeydew with the snow leopard spots. Mm-hmm. So let's follow the money here. With the Cosmic Apple and the Cotton Candy Grape, it's a branded product. And that product, I believe, if you come up with a Cotton Candy Grape or something extraordinary all of a sudden the pricing model changes too, right? You, know, you can charge 50 or 100% more for some of these extraordinary strawberries or grapes than you could for something generic. So it, yes. it really is follow the money here. And if you are in the grocery store, I'm such an impulse shopper, especially around these berries. So like when I see cotton candy grapes, I remember I lived in New York when I saw them for the first time and I just was like, I'm buying these. And they may have been like $15 for a bag of grapes and then I was kicking myself. But they they almost always sell for twice as much as other grapes and uh with the specialty berries strawberries those are i think they said 70 percent more than usual so yeah there's definitely money to be made so let's put this in context so at driscoll for strawberries the team grows over a hundred thousand varieties a year so many yeah so <laughs> so j just to understand what's going on here it's not like people are dealing with 20 or 30 varieties that there's just you know, corporate scale, mega scale testing going on out there to come up of the 100,000 varieties, find four that might eventually become $100 million businesses or bigger, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's extremely expensive to have 100,000 varieties being babysat. Um, it was interesting to talk to Phil, who they call Dr. Strawberry, who's their <laughs> head breeder at Driscoll's. And he is like a super strawberry nerd. I was really, I had a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, he loves what he does. He was telling me, you know, he had just got on the phone with me. He had tasted 60 strawberries. You're like taking a bite, taking notes, you know, yes to this one, no to that one. Like imagine for work tasting 60 to 100 strawberries a day. And I think they, they spit out a lot of them, but I was just like, this is a really wild way to work. So how is this going to change the produce section of your supermarket now? Because all of a sudden, instead of one kind of strawberry, right, you might have 10. Or it's, I mean, I, I guess it's like the apple section of your supermarket where you do have four or five options, right? 
Granny Smith, Red Delicious, Fuji, Gala, etc. So maybe that's where we're headed, where the world of apples in your supermarket uh, superseded the, the grapes and the pineapples and the melons, but that's where we're headed. You have The consumer has more choice now. Yeah, hopefully it's, I mean, it's like a ni- also a nice thought to be like, what label of this is going to get people to eat more fruit than they normally would? That's awesome too. Have you ever been in the grocery store and been buying something like Romanesco and someone else at the store is like, what is that? What are you going to do with that? It's like if they had signs like at the bookstore right. that's like staff recommendation, right. this point. funky vegetable, here's how you cook it. I mean, it's it, what's interesting is that for this new strawberry batch Driscoll's in stores, they not only had free samples to give out, um, but they also created these big signs that are like a flavor wheel and it's like this strawberry has notes of pineapple and peach this strawberry is high acidity and they're trying to educate customers on like the the idea that a fruit will have notes in the way that wine has notes so you've tasted a few of these things i mean which were the winners which were the losers and which was the most surprising i really like sunset groans Strawberries, they're, they're harder to find. Uh, they're the lolly berries, which is one that's candy flavored, was um, truly very sweet. And then they had a pear berry that was kind of weirdly long, and I thought that was just kind of unusual. The pink pineapple, I thought I was going to hate because it looks like deli ham, <laughs> and it really does. Uh, but I liked it. It was like, if I closed my eyes and bit into it, I'd say this is pineapple, but it's been muted. So, you know, sometimes pineapple can make your tongue feel itchy, which is like right. a minor allergic reaction that's happening, especially the more you eat it. And it's toned that down. So it's a milder flavor, but still very juicy and sweet. And I thought that was a really fun one and fun to bring to a party where people are just kind of, most people were like kind of grossed out by it. I, uh, that one's visually, I think the most novelty uh the the i tried the picasso melon didn't love it because the flesh was yellow of the one that i had and it looked like the rind and it was really hard for me to slice it to know what was the rind and what was the flesh and i said never again picasso i'm so sorry uh that's the those are the first three that come to mind but yeah i i when i see them at the grocery store i try them alex uh it's been a pleasure next on my list try a cotton candy grape thank you thank you for having me chris that was Alex Beggs, author of the New York Times article on gumdrop grapes and other fruits designed to taste like candy. In this new reality where fruits are bred to taste like candy, we wondered what innovations would kids dream up? Our reporter, Danny Voss, asked campers at the YMCA Camp Olson in Longville, Minnesota, if they could make fruits taste like anything in the world, what would they choose? I would want bananas to taste like blue Gatorade. Probably do marshmallows. Happy birthday ice cream. Probably ice cream. Chocolate chip cookie dough. I would want it to taste like s'mores. I have a banana that tastes like a strawberry because I like strawberries much better than I do like bananas. Uh, my favorite fruit is apple because it was also my first word. And if I could have any fruit taste like a candy, it would be sherbet ice cream because it's delicious. So most kids want their fruits to taste sweeter. But one kid at Camp Olsen wanted something a bit more 
Savory. My name is Luis. I'm seven years old. And my favorite fruit are strawberries and grapes. All right. And if you were to have a fruit taste like anything in the world, what would you want it to taste like? Mm. Mm. Fish sticks. Special thanks to our reporter, Danny Voss, and of course for their amazing ideas, Alexis, Lizzie, Emmanuel, Isaac, Harper, Lucy, Karina, and Luis. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we explore the haunting history of Halloween. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by author and Halloween historian Leslie Bandetine. Having written five books on the topic... She's been quoted as the foremost authority on Halloween. Leslie, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Let's start with a pronunciation quiz. S-A-M-H-A-I-N. How do you pronounce that? Samhain. <laughs> I'm glad I asked you because I wouldn't <laughs> even make close. So uh, what, why don't you start by explaining what that is? Sure. This is prehistoric Ireland in the sagas that were left once the Catholic monks wrote them down. We find this holiday called Samhain that's on the very edge of winter. It's it's at the end of October, beginning of November. It's called Samhain because that means summer's end, and it was a time where the tribes would bring their their herds in from summer pasture to to shelter them for winter. And the tribes would gather together. It was a time of food, feasting, drinking, telling stories, boasting, contests. But because it was sitting there on the edge of winter, it was also a supernatural time. And things would come out of the earth at that time. Monsters would come out of the earth at that time. And they could menace the world of men. And people could go missing in this other world at Samhain. So it's always had this supernatural cast, which um, Halloween has to this day. It's always kind of been about what we can't see in the dark. So this starts out as a pagan event that has to do with another world, then has to do later with the dead. Uh, it is taken over by some extent by the church. So, So when they did this, All Saints Day on November 1st in the 9th century. Was the church trying to capitalize on an existing tradition and weave it into the church's tradition, or were they viewed as being not related at all? They they were simpatico. Hmm. So it's not like the church went to stomp out Samhain, although the church did do that on some holidays, and that was an M.O., In this case, the rituals and the beliefs and the folklore around it kind of existed side by side because they were similar enough. They were all about the other world, the supernatural, things we don't know. So All Hallows' Eve, we've all heard of, when did that term come around? And was that a just an All Saints Day derivation or, or, or did it come from somewhere else? All Saints Day was known in England as All Hallows'. 
So All Hallows' Eve, the night before All Hallows became All Hallows' Eve, shortened to Halloween. So All Saints' Day gives the holiday its name, and All Souls' Day kind of gives it its connection with the other world and with the world of the spirit. So we get to the Victorian period, let's say post-Civil War, 1870s and on, and all of a sudden it starts to become popularized by women's magazines, etc., why do you think is, – is it the connection to the dead, which was huge in the Victorian period? In fact, I, I believe that seances were usually carried out by women. It was one of the few professions you could have where you work for yourself, right? So it was a very popular way to, to make a living. But the Victorians were obsessed with the dead. Why do you think it became so popular at that time post-Civil War? I think there were a number of reasons, and you're so right about seances. And this was a time when they had suffered so much death in the Civil War, but also so much unknowing, so many unidentified dead. So the question was, you know, where is my son? Is he dead? Is he in a hospital? Is he coming back? So when you find Halloween and stories in those ladies' magazines, the first Halloween ghosts are actually Civil War soldiers coming home mm. as, as ghosts. Um, but it wasn't just that they loved the spirit world and spiritualism and seances, and they were fascinated by that. They were also the first post-industrial society, and it was a time when People were looking for things more rural, more simple, hmm. more related to nature and perhaps a deeper truth. And so here was this holiday that they were finding out about that seemed so exotic and yet so quaint and so old world and so natural, so attached to the earth, that they loved it also for that. And then the explosion in printing and cheap printing and magazines made it possible for everybody to read about this holiday. And what they printed more often than not was a poem by Robert Burns called Halloween from 1785, which had this amazing amount of footnotes after the poem that detailed exactly how you play all the games that the Scots played on Halloween. And that's what the Victorian hostesses love to pick up on is let's let's do this stuff. Let's do it. Here's the blueprint. We can do it at our party. You know, as you're talking, it's so interesting because everything you're, you're saying about post-industrial America wanting to reconnect with nature, reconnect with mystery, reconnect with something simpler seems extremely apt today. Mm. So if I went to a Halloween celebration in the 1880s or 90s and I walk in the door, what would I expect to find? You would expect the house to be a little bit darkened and lit by firelight and candles and jack-o'-lanterns, and it would be spooky Victorian hostesses would cut strips of newspaper and hang them from the ceiling so you could just feel them go across your face. Mm. Or um, I've read really bizarre things like, you know, nailing a piece of liver to the wall so you feel <laughs> that in the dark. <laughs> but it was all about creating an atmosphere. And they, they were the first inklings of our, our haunted houses, even in Victorian parties, because you would, you would enter the house, and if you had a cellar, the guests would be directed down cellar, maybe, to a dark place to take off their coats. But on the way down the stairs, um, there's one instance of, you know, breaking a giant paper bag over the person's head as they go down in the dark, and then someone else puts a wet hand on their back of their neck. So <laughs> there were some titillation 
um, thrill. You wanted that sort of thing in a party, but it was also beautiful. So hanging horseshoes and apples across the doorways and decorating with chrysanthemums and having food that was available, nuts, apples, cabbages. And then you would play games. And these are things that hostesses picked up from magazines by reading these Robert Burns poems. And they were about fortune-telling. In the old world, there was fortune-telling on Halloween. But at first, it had to do with who might die in the next year. But as time went on and years went by, it was about who would you marry? Who would you love? Who loves you? So if you take an apple and pair it in one long peel and you throw it over your left shoulder, it will land in the initial of the man or woman that you're going to marry. Or if you go out on Halloween at midnight to a crossroads, you can hear the future whispered in the wind. Or if you, if, <laughs> if you wet your blouse in a running stream, hopefully, but any water will do, and hang it up to dry and go to sleep. This one kind of works like Santa Claus. Your future love will come and turn it over in the middle of the night. It seems to me like you're describing a Halloween that's really for adults. And today, of course, it's now become more for adults than it used to be. But when I was a kid, it was for kids. How how did the kid Halloween fit into this? Yes, it became about kids in the 20th century, although there are, you can see illustrations of children at parties in Victorian America. And in the early 20th century, Halloween was a big town-wide celebration and everyone was involved. So families, children's adults, grandma, grandpa, everyone could celebrate Halloween at that point. But after the Second World War with the baby boom and the beginning of suburbs, Halloween was turned over to children. And trick-or-treating came about (laughs) as an attempt by town and civic leaders to keep kids occupied Hmm. during Halloween so they wouldn't be out, you know, painting your house with tar or greasing trolley tracks or hanging your rocking chairs in the trees. So uh, let's talk about food. Uh, The Halloween dumb supper. What's a dumb supper? A dumb supper is... Something you find a lot in folklore, but it's a silent supper. You cook it in silence. In some cases, you're supposed to cook it backwards. I'm not quite sure how that works, but you you cook it in silence. You set an extra plate. has to happen on Halloween, and you eat. And at midnight on Halloween, you are supposed to see the spirit of the person that you are missing, whether that be someone who has died who you want to see again or someone that you love that you think loves you and you want to see if they really do. Either way, some spirit of somebody comes in and sits down at the table and starts eating with you. If you don't do it exactly right. (laughs) Well, there's always a good excuse. Yeah, you didn't do it exactly right. You know, it occurs to me, people love to be irrational. I mean, being irrational is a core part of the human nature and experience. Uh, And people, whether they actually believe it or not, they want to believe it because it just makes life fuller in some way. That's what I like about it. Here's one you write about. uh, In the 19th century, girls in the American South put trays of cornmeal next to their beds in hopes that, quote, ghosts would write the initials of their secret lovers in it. Now, it might have been a worm or a mouse or (laughs) some other rodent who left a trail in the 
in the uh, in the cornmeal. Yeah, but you know, if you love Stephen, that was an S. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that's so interesting is that this time of year, which is connected to death, right? Because you're going into winter and things are dying off, and then it connects to you know the human dead and and uh, ghosts and goblins and witches all over the world. This is a consistent theme through so many cultures. It is. It is. And I would say, I mean, so many cultures have a time to remember the dead. It seems to be a critical part of being human, right? Okay. So let's decide this year I want to give a Halloween party. If I wanted to give a Victorian-style party that was more for adults, could you just give me some – give me a quick tour? Like what would I do? Well, you would set your table with candles and jack-o'-lanterns and lots and lots and lots of colorful food. And you would have stations throughout your house. It would be throughout your whole house. You have candy upstairs. You have popcorn in the basement. There was a Victorian party I read about where you let your water run over a cowbell. So it kind of tolls, a bell tolls in Mm. the basement the whole time. So, you know, sound and food and light and string leaves wherever you can string them, hang apples from the doorways. It also becomes a nice game because um, trying to bite an apple on the end of a string was something that was very popular at a Victorian parties, especially if you had a man and a woman on opposite side trying to bite the same apple. <laughs> they might end up kissing. How about that? Yeah. You could take two chestnuts and put them on your fireplace and let them burn and name one for yourself and one for the person you really have a crush on and see how they burn. If they burn through just beautifully, you know that that relationship will last a lifetime. But if they split and pop apart, then that relationship is doomed. I love that. It's better than Tinder. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that is really cool. I kind of like that. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. And you, you've now motivated me to take this seriously instead of just going on some trick-or-treating. I think I need to give a party. Oh, yes. Leslie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Leslie Bannatine. She is the author of Halloween, an American holiday in American history. A neighbor of mine in Vermont once lived in an old farmhouse in North Carolina. One night, the ghost of a Confederate soldier appeared and then sat on the foot of his bed. You know, ghosts used to be personal. They were neighbors and family members. Now Halloween is populated by superheroes, monsters, and some scary politicians. Life and death were once on good terms. Now they are separated by a very large chasm. We don't ask the spirits to find us a future partner or give us comfort from the beyond. Halloween, formerly a friendly get-together between the living and the dead, is now a children's outing, one devoid of pagan ritual and really any meaning. To quote Shakespeare, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Death has become an undiscovered country, and there's the rub. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, German-style winter squash bread. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I, you know, I recently interviewed someone a few months ago about German baking, and I thought I knew something about the topic, which, of course, I guess I think I know something about everything. I was just going to say. <laughs> I know Lynn was going to say it. I said instead of you. <laughs> you know, I had no idea of the range of baking. It was fascinating. 
But one of the recipes we came up with at Milk Street is a German-style squash bread or a pumpkin bread, Kürbisbrot. So tell me about it, because it just sounds like one of those things I should know about that I don't. Well, it translates as pumpkin bread, but it's not the pumpkin bread you're thinking of, which is like a quick bread in a loaf pan. It's actually more like a squash brioche, really. It's a yeasted bread made with squash. In this case, we're going to use butternut squash, which is sort of a new world squash in Germany, but very popular there now. So essentially, we're just going to make a brioche dough, and for some of the moisture in the dough, we're going to use squash. Now, typically in Germany, they would just boil squash and add that directly in, but we tried a recipe from Louisa Weiss, who has a book called Classic German Baking, and she roasted a whole squash cut in half, and that roasting adds so much more flavor. It gives it more complexity and it has a little bit more sweetness. So we roast the squash first, scoop out the flesh, and then add that to the dough. This is a yeasted bread, obviously, has a little bit of butter in it, but not too much, actually. (laughs) No. I mean, but made like a brioche dough where you mix everything together, knead for a little bit, then add the butter, softened butter, piece by piece um, until it's incorporated. But it's only half a stick. It's four tablespoons. So it's not like two sticks of butter. But (laughs) allspice and pumpkin seeds also, right? That's right. So allspice in the dough for a warm spice flavor, a little bit of honey, which of course, like squash and honey, I don't see how that could be a bad combination. You know, when it rises for an hour... Then into the refrigerator, because again, it's enriched. It's a little bit challenging to work with. And then traditionally it can be done as just a round, like a boule, but we are doing it as a braided loaf. So really, really pretty uh, loaf of bread on like a fall table, a holiday table in the fall, and simple to do. Just if you know how to braid hair, you know how to braid bread. (laughs) This is just absolutely delicious. Looks great. Uh, Lynn, thank you. German-style winter squash bread. If you want to expand your bread repertoire, this would be my pick. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for German-style winter squash bread at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman pits full-size candy bars against their miniature counterparts. That's coming up in just a moment. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability they'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing. At your Lexus dealer. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day is here with me to answer some of your baking questions. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So, Cheryl, I'm confused about cake frosting, right? There's buttercream, then there's Italian or Swiss versions with, like, sugar syrup in it, right? Right. Some of them use heavy cream, some of them are just sugar and butter. I don't like just sugar and butter. Is there some version you love that I should know about? Oh, my gosh. There are so many that I think you would love. I make an American buttercream that isn't so sweet as they typically are, and I use buttermilk in mm. that frosting and or whole milk, and then I add a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of salt, mm. because sometimes they can just be so cloyingly sweet. But I do enjoy an Italian or Swiss meringue buttercream also. And those, I find, are just, I love the texture and they're not as sweet. But yeah, there's a lot of buttercreams. And then there's one that I love to make. It's an old heritage recipe and it's made with flour as the thickener. Really? Yes. And it's very unusual. You do something almost like a roux and mm. that kind of thickens you know, the frosting with sugar and butter, and that is delicious and not terribly sweet either. So an Italian meringue, which is egg whites with hot sugar syrup Correct. into it, 
Can you just also add butter to that? Oh, no, you definitely. It's a buttercream. Okay. So you add butter to that, and then the Swiss meringue, you're kind of heating the egg whites up first with the sugar, and then that gets butter. It's always about the butter. (laughs) I've made an Italian meringue, which is egg whites. Oh, right. And then you get a very light kind of meringue, right? Right. That's great on, like, you know, s'mores bars or, you know, something like that. But, yeah. So, okay, don't forget the butter and reduce the sugar. (laughs) Okay, let's take some calls. Sounds good. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Jean Glover calling from Savannah, Georgia. How are you? Hi, Jean. Hi, Cheryl and Christopher. How are you two? Good. Doing great. You you guys sound like you know each other. (laughs) We do. All right, see, (laughs) I knew there was something funny going on here. Savannah is small. Small town. I absolutely do. Okay, how can we help? My family and I have been enjoying Cheryl's Bakery and her cookbooks ever since she opened 20 years ago or so. But I did have a question. We are so blessed to have such fabulous fruits here in Savannah. And I was wondering, to what degree can one substitute one fruit for another in a recipe? Can you substitute you know, equally or do you have to take sugar content into consideration? I do it most of the time, but I didn't know if I should be as carefree about it as I am. Well, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. Apple pie is its own thing. Yeah. So you just treat that differently. I either don't use any thickener for apple pie or I might use two tablespoons of flour with it. Mm -hmm. And I don't use a ton of sugar. Like for eight cups of apples, I might use half a cup of sugar because I really want the flavor of the apples to come through, which is subtle. He gets the good apples, Gene. Yeah. And it's great if you can get like three or four different varieties of apples. And if you can find the older varieties, they're great. Mm-hmm. Berries are a category. I use minted tapioca to thicken my berry pies, and I use about a tablespoon. It has to be minted tapioca, or you can take a coffee grinder and grind down pearls of tapioca, so it's pretty fine. And I use about a tablespoon for every two cups of fruit, two to three cups of fruit. If you look at the back of the box, it says a tablespoon per cup, which is way too much. So for six to eight cups of fruit, I might use three tablespoons of minted tapioca and sugar. And then the sugar amount depends entirely on the fruit. Exactly. Um, I would use up to three quarters of a cup with seven or eight cups of fruit. But if you had like really sweet peaches, which of course, Cheryl, you have, you're not going to need a lot of sugar with some of those. Peaches are very juicy though. And I do, I use minted tapioca, which Cheryl's probably going to yell at me about. No. In my peach pie. And not too much sugar, probably. Those are just a few things. Also, if your blueberries tend to have a fair amount of pectin, they'll set up easier than like raspberries or rhubarb or other things, which don't have as much. And Jean, I do mix berries with no problem. Mm -hmm. The only thing that you need to be wary of, I mean, just some berries have more liquid, you know, like a strawberry, and you don't want it to be mushy. Cherries tend to sometimes give that same effect, but... Basically, if you're making a pie, you want to just make sure that you're really cooking it until it boils and has that really thick, you know, boiling, and then it's going to thicken it that way. But you just kind of have to play around, and practice makes perfect. Cheryl just did something that's really important, which is when you look at the pie and you made a couple slits in the top, you really do want to see it boiling and bubbling, and that will help thicken it. I think that's a big mistake. People do pull their pies out too soon, in my opinion. Me too. When it comes to a pastry, a pie crust, you definitely want to get that 
golden crust, really brown, and right. then also you want your juice to be cooking where it is having the opportunity with whatever thickener you use to thicken. Otherwise, you're going to slice it and it's going to run everywhere. Do you reduce your margin for error if you make a crisp or a cobbler instead of a pie in terms of switching fruits out? Sure, because when you serve a cobbler or anything like that, you're spooning it out because you, you want the juice because you have the right. the biscuits on top or the, the pie pastry on top or the cookies on top, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the juice is a good thing, but it's not a good thing in a pie where it all right. falls apart. Because so, you yes, can just it's scoop easier. it out. Plus, if all else fails, that's why God created ice cream. So <laughs> I always wonder Absolutely. why God created ice cream. That's, well, <laughs> the, the other thing you can do we haven't mentioned is a crostata. Oh, yeah. Which oh, is a one-crust yeah. pie, right? And right. So, you only use two or three cups of fruit for that. I might use just two or three tablespoons of sugar, mix it in a bowl, little lemon juice or lemon zest, whatever. Roll out one pie dough, which is a cup and a quarter of flour with eight tablespoons of butter, a little salt, a little sugar. Put the fruit in the middle, roll up the sides, and throw that in a 375 oven for an hour. That also will evaporate the extra juices as well. Excellent. I'm so motivated. I think next up is strawberry rhubarb. Thanks for calling, Jean. Take care. See you soon, Cheryl. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sharon Burnham calling. Hi, Sharon. Hello. <laughs> how can we help? I am calling to get some advice on how to adapt recipes if you're going to make them in different size quantities. So, for example, I have a favorite cream scone recipe where you would normally cut 12 wedges and then bake it, and I wanted to make them into small mini scones using a mini muffin tin, and I just wasn't sure how to adjust time or temperature, and I wasn't happy with the choices I made. First of all, don't use a mini muffin tin. (laughs) Scones and biscuits are essentially the same thing, so they have to be baked at like 425 for 12 to 15 minutes and just on a baking sheet on parchment paper or whatever, without any pan, because the pan's going to reduce the heat around it and mess up the baking, and you're probably not going to get a good, you know, rise out of it. So I would just roll it out maybe a little thinner and just buy a set of uh, biscuit cutters and use the small one, whatever one you want, and just cut them out and put them on a baking sheet and bake them at 425. But if you put them in a tin of any kind, a muffin tin, it's going to shield it from the heat of the oven. It's just not going to bake up right. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> You're going to get a lousy rise, and they're not going to brown. You know, a good biscuit or scone's got a nice brown bottom to it, too. And so. you could also just, you know, like Chris said, roll them out, cut them into squares, and then cut those squares into little triangles if it's that shape that you were trying to go for and the look for your scone. And I love the little mini scones. They're so cute and delicious. And would you um, separate them when you put them on the baking sheet? Yes. Yes. All right. And when you re-roll for scraps, if you have scraps, by the way, one trick is the second time around with the scraps, don't roll it as thin. You're going to overwork them. Mm. So keep the dough a little thicker. So when you cut out the second round, assuming you're doing circles and have scraps, they'll end up being the same height as the first batch. Good advice. 
Well, that was exactly right. They just didn't have the right texture or taste even. And so now I understand why. Don't use a mini muffin tin. No, no, no. No, no. no tins for biscuits. One last piece of equipment, too. Yes, indeed. Well, thanks for calling. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate yep. it. Yep. Thanks, Sharon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Year Radio. Cheryl and I are here to save you from a baking disaster. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Richard Reuter. Hi, Richard. I'm very excited to talk to you all today. I really appreciate your time. I am calling because I have an issue with a caramel cake that I have made for my entire life. And I have just recently started to have some issues with the caramel icing developing blooms. And I'm not quite sure what is causing it. Part of my process is putting it in and out of the freezer so I can let the icing set up and so that the layers don't sway back and forth. And I'm not sure if it's the humidity in my kitchen or if it's moisture getting to the icing, but it's been happening with greater and greater frequency here in the last six months or so, and I cannot wrap my head around what is causing it. What changed when you started having this problem? Yeah, that's the thing about, you know, baking is science. So that's what I always do is kind of start peeling back the layers of what is different. One of the things that I did that is different is that I started putting it on a rack that is covered in the freezer. I think it's definitely the culprit is the freezer because the moisture and caramel don't mix. I'm just curious, do you put any acid in your caramel, like uh, cream of tartar or lemon juice to kind of stabilize it? No, it is as basic as caramel gets. It's butter, sugar, milk. Sounds delicious. So it's one that you make and you stir for a long time. That's right. Well, actually, typically what I've done recently is I put on an episode of Milk Street Radio and I just stir and stir and stir. (laughs) That's great. And is a cake, you're not covering it. You're just kind of letting it set. That's right. It's on a tray. It's not wrapped in plastic. It's not until a couple days later that you sort of just start to see these little like chocolate blooms develop and they get larger and larger and it doesn't happen to all of them. Hmm. I make a few at a time. It's reacting with the moisture in the freezer. My mom always used to tell me I could freeze and refreeze this cake for up to six months and I never had an issue with blooming during that time. You said the blooming doesn't occur in the freezer. It occurs after you take it out of the freezer two days later. Is that right? So as we take it out to thaw, you'll sort of start to see these spots of sweat develop, and then from that is where the bloom occurs. When they come out of the freezer, were they always left in the same place that's roughly the same temperature? Good point. Good point. Or did you change where you put them after they come out of the freezer? I've always brought them out to the same place, same same temperature. Same time of year? It's not hotter or colder? I'm in South Carolina, so during the summer months, it's a little bit warmer, but I try and adjust that with our air conditioning. Yeah. I'm in Savannah, so South Carolina... Very humid this past year. I think more than usual. Yes. And unfortunately, weather does affect everything. And there's something happening, though, I think, 
with that freezer and then the temperature of it outside, don't you, Chris? Yeah, I think what's happening is you're attracting moisture from the air when it comes out of the freezer, right? Mm -hmm. And that moisture is causing the blooming. Yeah. Do you make caramel cake? Because I usually, I don't make it in the summer at all. Uh, Year-round. Well, the only other thing I can think of is going back to Cheryl's point about adding a little acid to it. To stabilize it. You might stabilize the caramel. That's the only thing that made some sense to me, too. I mean, you won't have to add a lot. I have found doing that really does help, especially in, you know, humid weather or if it's too cold or I just have had no problems with it. I've actually not seen a bloom on a caramel, only on chocolate. I think we're left with add a little lemon juice or other acid to it. Cream of tartar. Yeah. Okay. I will report back with the results. Please check back. And then I would go back to, you said you changed something different with the way you're storing it in the freezer. I would go back to however you were doing it. Do it like your mom taught you. Don't change anything. That's my advice. Okay. Mom knows best. The best advice I've ever been given. Yeah, yes, you guys, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. All right, I, I appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for all y'all do. Pleasure. Thanks oh, for calling. thank Take you care. for calling. Right. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's hear from our friend, Dan Pashman. Dan, what's going on? Well, Chris... Halloween's coming. What are you? What are you giving out? What do you give out at your house? I bet. I bet you're the toothpaste house. The toothpaste house. <laughs> you know, always the, oh, there's like the wah wah house that like gives out a toothbrush and toothpaste. I know. I know. It, it, <laughs> no one goes to that house. Um, well, I'm taking my my five and three year old out. Okay. So we just leave a big bowl of candy. And what's in the bowl? Well, I I like to get Milky Ways. I like Snicker bars. Right, I, li- okay. I like bars. You know, candy bars is my right. favorite. What what size candy bars? Well, that's a good question. I, last Halloween, there were some people who we gave out full-size bars. Mm-hmm. And I'm going like, they're the man. I mean, <laughs> so I, I think this year I might actually do that instead of those right. little All minis. Right. So, the, the minis are kind of like, eh, you know, you, you're going through the motions, but you're not really committing, right? I, I think that's a great way to put it. And I want to tell you, Chris, that, you know, exactly. Growing up, I you know, there's always one or two houses in town that give out full-size candy bars, right. and everybody knows those houses. Absolutely. And you assume that the people live there must be just like the coolest, yeah. most fun people you could ever encounter. Well, last year, in the lead-up to Halloween, I had a realization. I said to myself, wait a second, we could be that house. <laughs> this could be me. It's my- This goal is within reach. <laughs> it's my moment to shine. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so I, I, I convinced my wife. I said, we're going to do it. We're going to be the full-size candy bar house. And I told my kids, I said, tell all your friends in school, the Pashman's house has full-size candy bars. And we loaded up, and we got a lot of trick-or-treaters, and it was very fun. But the other great thing about it, Chris, I got to eat some of the full-size candy bars. I I knew this was coming. (laughs) And let me tell you something. After years of not having had one and only eating the minis, it is a whole other experience. It is. No, no, you're absolutely right, because it's not like one bite and it's gone. You can tooth your way into it multiple times. Yeah. Well, there, there's that, but also it's different ratios. Oh, really? The oh. bigger candy bars, the full-size bars, have a different surface area to volume ratio, so there's less exterior chocolate in relation to the volume of the interior fillings. Only Dan Pashman would talk about the ratio, <laughs> the square inches on the outside. I'm telling you, it really makes a difference. Like, you get 
big pieces of peanut in your Snickers bar. And when you snap through the the shell of the Three Musketeers and land in that chewy, pillowy center, you're really landing in something soft and decadent. It's not just like you're not through it before you know it. Well, it's also a way of buying popularity in your neighborhood. I mean, yeah, and I'm not above that. No. <laughs> yeah, just, that was my point exactly. So, so, so this year, are you going to take it one step further, or are you just going to repeat the whole big candy bar routine? I think I'm going to stick with the big candy bars. But I, I, I aside from just like enjoying eating the, the full size candy bars, it gave me an appreciation for the people who invented these candy bars. Because you know, as much as they're like owned by giant corporations now, at some point there were human beings who came up with these combinations. And being like, is this good? Is that good? What do we want? When you eat a mini of one of these candy bars, you're like, yeah, I like whatever. It's sweet. It's chocolate. It's good. But when I ate the full size candy bar, I was, I was like transported back to that like mm. invention moment of like, wow, like this was this is a really good idea. Like this works. The textures, the flavors, like this is a fantastic sweet treat. And it gave me a new respect for the people who invented it. Are you one of those households that requires the trick-or-treaters to perform for their candy? <laughs> no, no. Not, uh, well, I mean, they have to say trick-or-treat. They have to say trick-or-treat, okay. but I don't but, need But, but any... they don't have to sing a song, recite a poem. No, no. We, we, we have tried to um, jury-rig some, like, scary things in our house. Like, I put a scary mask on top of a stuffed animal and attached a rope to it, and I was trying to set it up to where I could throw it out of the second-floor window, and it would, like, swing on a rope and kind of, like, swing into the faces of the kids while they're at the front door and um, <laughs> scare the bejesus out of them. But um, it, it only worked a little bit, but it was still fun for the kids to try. Dan, thank you. I, I think I'm going to join uh, fully the, the full candy bar uh, group. I think you're absolutely right. And the best part is you get to eat a few of them later. Absolutely. 100%. Well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll try to stop by your house if I'm in your area, Chris. Just just leave your home address on social media and I'll find you there. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our TV show, and learn about our latest cookbook, Cook What You Have, Make a Meal Out of Almost Anything. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.